1 Peter chapter 1. We've been taking our time going through uh, verses 13. Uh, starting there, we, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 1 tonight, going through verse 25. And uh, if you've been following along, there have been a series of imperatives, uh, commands. Set your hope fully was the first one. Uh, be holy was the second uh, conduct yourselves with reverent fear. Conduct yourselves with fear was number three. And tonight it, uh, we have the command to love one another earnestly from the heart. Uh, tonight I, I just recognize that uh, we're dealing with something that we've heard before and dealing with something I think, if we're honest, we are not quite sure is possible. Uh, because the love that Peter's talking about is uh, earnest, earnest, authentic, honest love from a pure heart. So the, the kind of person who loves other people naturally, in a sense, who loves other people, they just can't help themselves. The, the, there's there's a, a desire to bless people, a delight in people uh, that comes really from a heart. You've seen people like this. They, they just... They just spill over with affection for people. They, they deeply care about uh, what you're going through, what you're experiencing. You can, just, you can tell the moment you start talking to them. And maybe you, uh, if you're honest with your own heart, you recognize that that's not really how you interact with people. Uh, there are people that you tend to maybe avoid. Uh, even, even among your friends, have you ever thought to yourself, um, do I really deeply delight in these people? And sometimes the truth is, not really. I mean, it's, they're nice. I like having friends, but, you know, right now I'm tired. I'd like to go home. Or, uh, you know, I'm a little tired of this person's problems all the time, and um, I wish they'd sort of get it together. Um, or this person's particular burden or grief, whatever it might be. I, I hope that you've sensed, unless I'm the only one in the room, that we're really not that good at loving. Actual, actual loving. We can be nice. We can learn how to get along, play nicely with the other children in the playground. But as a, in terms of actually loving people, really actually truly delighting in people and, and having a hunger to bless people, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think sometimes we wonder if it's not actually possible for us to do that. It's just sort of a gift that some people have. Well, tonight Peter is going to... Uh, teach us that it is absolutely possible, that the gospel has the power to transform you, to make you someone who uh, by sinful nature is a very inward bent person, a self-centered sort of person, and the gospel's able to make you into someone who actually loves people, that you delight in people and you hunger to bless people because you care for them. And so that's what we'll be looking at tonight. We're going to begin reading at verse 13, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time, excuse me, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us. Our God in heaven, we need to learn how to love, and we just acknowledge that we are powerless to uh, create this ability, but we thank you that nothing is impossible with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us then this gift um, of love, actual, authentic, genuine gospel love for others. Uh, and we pray that you do this, Lord, for our blessing and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever received a, um, a gadget of some sort, maybe some electrical appliance? And um, it could do all sorts of things, and you just had the joy of kind of discovering all the different things that it could do. I uh, was just reading this past week an article about a, a kitchen appliance that is the rage in Europe. It's called the Thermomix. It's about the size of a large toaster, and it is basically it's a, a, a chef in a box. Let me just read a little bit from this article. It says, it chops, mixes, blends, kneads, steams, melts, measures, and cooks with the best of them. All in all, the Thermomix kitchen gadget does the work of 12 separate appliances, boasting enough multifunctionality to process entire dishes such as Thai soups and pasta salads. The timer-controlled heating element enables it not only to cook, but also steam vegetables, melt butter, emulsify sauces and seasonings. It can whip up ready-to-bake muffins or biscuits in a matter of minutes and healthy refreshments like smoothies in just seconds. It can also turn out desserts like yogurts, pastries, and ice cream. And I was looking where you hit the you know, buy button on that one. That sounds like a fantastic little thing to stick under the counter and, uh, and uh, have your wife work, right? Is it? All these things it can do. The one thing the reviewer said, it, it, it can do so many different things that you really do need to read the instructions. Um, you need a tutorial to understand and enjoy all the wonderful things the Thermomix can accomplish. Well, as I'm, a reading, as I'm reading 1 Peter, it, it just rings to me like a tutorial on the Christian life. Because the, the gospel is able to do so much more than we had imagined. The Christian life is so much more multifaceted, so much more amazing than we maybe would, had uh, believed that it was. And, and Peter is excitedly, you can't help but note the enthusiasm. Of course, Peter does everything with enthusiasm. But as he's writing this letter, he's excitedly explaining how amazing, how powerful the Christian faith really is. In Romans uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 16, Paul writes that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Peter seems to maybe take that statement and he explains how the power works and, and how it actually functions in the life of a believer. 
And if you, and if you look at chapter 1 of Peter's letter, and you ask the question, what does Peter, what does he see as the engine of the Christian life? What does Peter see as the, 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 the center, the power source that makes it go, that makes it work? And the answer to that question would be hope. Uh, Peter sees hope as the engine that drives vibrant, fruitful Christian living. It, hope is the, is the power that transforms lives. The first chapter is just saturated uh, with hope. It's not surprising, of course, if you remember Peter. Peter was the impulsive, impetuous, very self-confident disciple of Jesus. Peter was sure and certain that he was the best of the disciples. He was the most committed. He would, he would um, stop at nothing to serve Jesus. And so with the best of intentions, Peter's hopes are based on himself. He looks at what he's committed to doing. He looks at how he, how he serves. Peter's the one that says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. He's noticed that he's left everything to follow Jesus. He wants to make sure that, that Jesus has noticed as well. And, and so Peter is a, is a very hopeful disciple as he follows Jesus. The problem is his hopes are based on himself. And all of it comes apart catastrophically on one horrible evening around a campfire in, the, in the, the courts of the palace guard there where Peter denounces Jesus in front of a, a, a girl, a young girl, calls down curses from heaven if he ever knew this Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus turns and looks at him. And Peter goes out weeping bitterly. All of his hopes are dashed. I think it's an experience that many Christians have where you become a Christian or you've grown up as a Christian and you are somewhat confident as a Christian. This, this seems to be doable. You go to church, you read your Bible, or at least you try to, you pray, you believe the doctrines. Uh, you, you seem to be doing the Christian life fairly well as well as the next guy. But then something happens. Some, um, you find yourself doing something you never thought you would do. Or you find yourself doing something you've promised yourself a thousand times you wouldn't do. And there you are again. And you're, you find that your confidence as a disciple is being deeply shaken. This doesn't seem to be working for you. Or you don't seem to be able to do it right. Well, what God often is doing when he allows us to run headlong into our sinful self, he, he wants us in a sense to have a Peter experience so that we lose our hope in what we can do and we cast all of our hope on what Jesus can do. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. When his, when his hopes in his abilities as a disciple, when that was finally destroyed and demolished in irrevocable ways, Peter cannot put this back together. He's not going to be able to recapture his reputation. It's done. It's over. But Peter then, in the resurrection of Jesus, discovers a brand new basis for hope. And that's why he begins his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
Peter, when he met the resurrected Christ, found a brand new way of being a disciple, someone whose hope for success, hope for favor with God, hope for, for usefulness before the Lord, it's all based on what God has done in Jesus. And so the whole first chapter is just saturated with, with hope, that God has given us this living hope through a resurrection, and God's given us an inheritance that can never be lost, and God keeps us for the inheritance, chapter 5 and following, so we can't be lost, and he does that through faith, which can't be lost. Just over and over again, Peter is rooting our hope in all that God has done for us in Jesus. Which is why then in verse 13, now he says, therefore, now that God has done everything that he has done, therefore, because God has given you all these reasons for hope, hope, set your hope fully on all that God has accomplished for you. Oh, you think of the joy that Peter would have had in, in writing that. Grab onto the gospel with this joyful tenacity. You cannot fail. You can't be lost. If you're in Jesus Christ by faith, you're in Jesus Christ forever. And that reality and that hope, that conviction in the gospel is what yields holiness. As, as John says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Everyone who has this confidence in the gospel purifies himself. And that hope yields a holy reverence and desire to bless the Father and to pursue the rewards that the Father gives. Because you see, the, your hope in the rewards that God the Father promises you, it diffuses the power of the temptations around you. Because you look at what God the Father has promised to you, and then you look at what the devil promises, and they're all lies. They're just empty lies. But you got to be convinced of the gospel. Everything for Peter is, flows from the reality of the hope that we can have. And, and that includes, as we see tonight, this command to love. What gives you the ability? What is able to actually make you a loving person? The gospel. The power of God unto salvation and the hope that it gives and so let's look then tonight briefly at the context and the command and the capacity. The context, the command, and the capacity. Peter begins with the context. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He, he prefaces the command. He's going to bring another imperative in here. Love one another earnestly from the heart. That's the command. But just as he does with all the other commands, he, he surrounds them with gospel truths. And so he reminds them of a previous, a previous event that has ongoing ramifications. That's the, the tense here. Having purified your souls, it's the perfect tense. It's a, a past event that has continuing uh, results. Imagine if you travel to a foreign country, a place you've never been before, a place very different from America, and your tour guide meets you at the hotel the first morning. And the tour guide says to you, having arrived in our wonderful country, let me explain to you the cultural customs and rules. Let me explain to you the things that you will need to know now that you're here of how to best flourish in this new country. And that's what Paul, he's the tour guide on this pilgrimage. Having arrived into the citizenship of the kingdom of God, let me explain how this works. So having purified your souls, what does that mean? 
Well, it can't mean that they've been perfected because if they were perfected, he wouldn't need to give them any of these reminders or commands. But remember, Peter is a Jewish man, born and raised. Peter's very familiar with ceremonial cleansing and rituals. And so to, to be purified is, is not to be perfected, it's to be set apart. It's to be made useful and, and fit for the worship and service of God. And Peter says, something happened to you. You used to be unfit, not useful, not clean. But God has accomplished something in the past. Something happened in the past that made you useful and fit for the worship and service of God. And, and that's something, of course, is their salvation. It's their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that Peter here is talking about faith. When he talks about the obedience to the truth, he's talking about the obedience of faith. In other words, faith being the obedient response to the gospel. Peter would say in, Acts, uh, in, in, the, in the book of Acts that God now commands men everywhere to repent. Faith is obedience to the gospel, and faith in his is a cleansing, uh, has a cleansing power. Peter himself uses that language in Acts chapter 15. Remember the first synod, the first general assembly in a sense of the New Testament church. And they gather together the elders and leaders of the church to determine what do we do with the Gentiles? Do we require them to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the laws of Moses? How does this work? And Peter, the leader of the Jewish church, the one who'd been somewhat resistant to Gentile participation, but the Lord has, you remember he sent him to Cornelius' house and, and uh, he had the vision of the sheep being let down from heaven and God commanding him to eat from un of unclean animals. And Peter says, I'm not doing that. And the Lord says, what I've made clean, don't, don't you be calling unclean. So Peter then sees Cornelius and his family brought to faith. And Peter says this, that he that is God, Acts 15 verse 9, made no distinction between them, the Gentiles, and us, the Jews, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles and made them useful for the service and worship of God. I think John the Apostle captures this obedience to the truth perfectly in 1 John 3.21. He says, this is his command, God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, faith, and to love one another as he, as he has commanded us. It's almost identical to the thought that Peter has here. Since you've, have, since you've um, having purified yourselves through obedience to the truth for sincere love for one another. Believing in Jesus Christ, loving one another as, as he's commanded us. That's the context in which we live. That's the context of the command. Now that you've come under the reign of the gospel, you believe in Jesus Christ and have come to new life in him, now love. And that's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I, um, it's, it's very difficult in some sense to talk about or preach on this kind of a command because you've heard it a thousand times. How many times haven't you heard sermons on brothers, let us love one another? Why, why so many sermons on love? Because the New Testament is... It's just shot full of it. it. Every book in the New Testament, in one way or another, has the same command. Jesus, of course, says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, because you've loved for one another. And all the apostles then pick it up. 
Paul, Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The great chapter, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. John says in John, uh, 1 John 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You want to discern who's who? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If a man does not love his brother, John says it's evident that he's not a child of God. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So James talks about it, Peter talks about it, Jude talks about it, the writer to the Hebrews talks about it. Every one of them talks about this command to love. Why? Because Jesus talked about it. Love actually is, as Paul says, it's the keeping, it's the New Testament keeping of the law. It's the same in the Old, of course. Love is the natural and necessary evidence of true faith and gospel hope. The three go together. Faith, hope, love. You'll find those showing up throughout the epistles. Faith is this confidence that God has loved me in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Christian faith is at its essence a confidence that God has loved me in Jesus. He loves me in Jesus. And because God loves me and gave me Jesus, then I have hope, confidence, Every obstacle to my future happiness has been removed, including death. Nothing can keep me from eternal joy. Nothing at all. There is nothing left to fear. And that faith, produces, which produces that hope, is going to bear the fruit of love. How can we not love him who loved us and we're going to experience the love of God being poured out into our hearts as we grasp the gospel. And we're going to start loving people in brand new ways. Ways that would seem humanly impossible. And so Peter, he just goes for it. He doesn't, you know, it's not this nice little polite, you know, be, be nice to each other. Love one another earnestly from the heart. Earnestly, the, 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 the Greek word here is, uh, it's literally stretch out. It's it's intentional, it's, it's fervent, it's, it's moving towards the emotional, physical, spiritual needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. It looks like being patient. Are you patient? I'm not very patient. Are you kind? Do you find yourself just flipping off with just cutting words? It bears all things, it believes all things, doesn't return evil for evil, rejoices in the truth. It's not just a sentiment. I've, and I've, I've heard you know, men say, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll say, man, you're not loving your wife. Of course I love my wife. And what he means is he has some vague emotional sentiment that every once in a while pops up and and how dare I suggest he doesn't love his wife? Well, it's, it's, it's because you're yelling at her. You're cutting her down. You're, you, you, don't, you don't care about what she thinks. You don't care about what she says. You don't, you don't protect her. You don't, you don't provide for whatever it might be. It's just it's really practical stuff. That's the love that Peter's talking about. 
It's, it's real. It's engaged. John says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how, do, how does God's love abide in him? And the answer is it doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so in the New Testament, you'll find James saying faith without work is dead. And when he's talking about work, he's talking about people who actually lo- love people and take care of them. So we need to ask ourselves some good questions. Do we? Do we, do we care about the people that are right in our home? Boys and girls, do you, do you care about your brother and sister? Do you make it a point to protect them, to help them, to share? Do you love your mom and dad? Do you make it a point to try to be responsive and obedient? Parents, do you love your children? Do you pray with them? Do you speak the gospel to them? Are you, are you willing to be patient and bear with them? Because they're just, they're just trying to figure it out too. Do you love your husband? Do you love your wife in, in the sense that you, you die to self and you're willing to serve? And then does it spill out of your home? Because so often we can just stop there. What about the widow who just could really use a visit? What about the foster child or orphan who really needs a mom and a dad and a home? When's the last time you gave yourself to spending hours with someone who's been caught in sin just to try to encourage them and speak the gospel to them? Or when you gave away your choice plans to spend a moment with someone who was lonely? You see, the Peter that loves talking about is... It's, it's a love that, that actually goes to where people are and where people are are hurting and where people are needy and, and, and we meet them there and we walk with them there. It's, it's, it's not a, just a trivial affection, but actual engagement. If you, if you remember Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, it's pretty convicting, isn't it, that, that the, the sheep and the goats are not distinguished by their emotions but by their actions, by what they did or didn't do. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm really uh, excited about encouraging us as a church to think about how can we be participating in a, in a variety of, of things. But one of, the, one of the things that's been on my heart is how do we care for Syrian refugees? How do we care for the church around the world that's being persecuted? How do we care about br- for brothers and sisters who literally don't have a home and families that have been separated? Is there anything that we can do? And I've, I've talked to the, the, the deacons just to encourage them to help us do that. They are our brothers and sisters. We have the world's goods. How, how can we actually love them and, and care for them? Because it'll be an, it's a necessary evidence of the, of the gospel and of our faith. So, so Peter says, do it earnestly and, and do it honestly from a pure heart. Not, not put on affection, but the real deal. We really mean it. We really care. We really want to. So that, that, the, that there's a reality inside of us that can't help but spill out of us. And, and I think that's the, that's the toughest thing. It's because, you see, it's, otherwise, all, all you'll hear when you hear the command to love is you'll hear, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you'll tell yourself, you know what, I really need to do more of that. Whatever it might be. But, but, but Peter wants more than that. The gospel accomplishes more than that. It doesn't give you just a list of things that you can try to, 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 to knock off and then say, there, I've loved. It, it, it calls you to have a different kind of heart so you can't help but love. So, so it's, it's just not an option for you that, that your heart is being transformed by the power of the gospel so that you gladly embrace people you once would have avoided. 
And you gladly give up things and time and money when you used, when, before you would have held tightly to those things. You can't help it. Something's happened inside of you. Something is happening. The gospel is actually transforming you. Because either we're going to, we, if it doesn't go there, you see, we'll settle for, we'll settle for just a sort of a, a facade, a facsimile of love, of, of what Peter's actually talking about. And we'll settle for being nice, and we'll settle for making efforts. We'll even settle for having good intentions. But we, we won't actually love. So how does this happen? How does it happen that you actually and I actually become changed inside? Well, Peter says it's absolutely possible because of what God has done. And we'll close with this, the capacity. Notice what he says, since. Since. Gives the command... Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter has absolute confidence that his readers can and will love according to the gospel. And he's confident since they've been born again. They're not the people they used to be. Something has happened to them. Something was done to them. They were born again. The tense of the verb is passive. It's not something they did. It's something God did. If you are a Christian, really, truly a Christian, you have a regenerate heart. You are not the person you used to be. In the sense that there are new desires, new affections, new griefs, new hungers, new tastes. You sense that you, you want to be what God is calling you to be. If you are not regenerate, you are not a Christian. You need to be regenerate. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Believing doctrine does not make you a Christian. The Holy Spirit alone can make you a Christian, and he does that by regenerating, bringing a dead heart to life. And Peter believes that's happened in the lives of his audience. God has done something miraculous, something supernatural. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again to a living hope. If people are going to learn to love, they need to be regenerate. I remember a wise counselor once telling me, when I'm counseling people, make sure they're trying to discern if they're born again. He says, stop beating up on dead people. Stop beating up on blind people. If they're not regenerate, if there's a dead heart there, they cannot love like this. If they're not regenerate, they don't have spiritual insight. They don't have spiritual wisdom. Stop yelling at them. <laughs> they're not regenerate. Are you born again? Peter believes that his audience has been born again. So he has absolute confidence, but notice he goes, he says more than just uh, you're born again. He emphasizes the seed that gave them birth, the imperishable living and abiding word of God. Why does he do that? Why does he suddenly start talking about the Bible? And why does he describe the Bible this way? Well, you see, Peter understands that he understands parentage and genetics, physically speaking, you take on the character of the seed that beget you. I look like a Van Dyke. I cannot help it. I didn't choose it. 
It is what it is. People look at me and say, I don't know, which, I don't know who your father is, but I promise you, you're a Van Dyke. And they're right. Got me. Dead didn't. Right? I'm a Van Dyke. How did that happen? Well, I'm a child of my father. And I bear so many of the characteristics. You take on so much of the characteristics of the seed that begets you. So, so it's going to determine, your genetics are going to determine how tall you're going to be, how, what diseases or ailments that you're going to face. It, it, it can determine the length of your life, your personality. So many of the things that are, make up you are determined by the seed that begets you. And, and that's exactly what Peter is saying. The seed that begets you is imperishable and, and lasting and abiding. The seed, you see, is going to have, it, it's going to have its characteristics. He knows that these people are going to learn how to love and actually love because God has begotten them. And God is love. And God has begotten them through his word. And Peter picks out one specific characteristic. He could have said through the infallible word of God, the inerrant word of God, the all-sufficient word of God. The word that Peter chooses is imperishable. Peter likes this word. It's the fourth time he's used it in this chapter. He loves this word. The imperishable word of God. Piper points out Peter loves this truth. Our inheritance, for instance, is not perishable, verse 4. Our faith is not perishable, verse 7. It's not like silver and gold which perishes. It's imperishable. Our ransom is not perishable, verses 18 and 19. God's word is not perishable, verse 23. What's the point? The point is it lasts. All of it lasts. All of it endures. All of it stands. It will, the word of God will never be proved wrong, ever. And not only that, it will always accomplish its purposes. It never goes without accomplishing the task for which it was sent. And so those who've been born by that enduring, imperishable word are enduring and imperishable people. They last forever. You see, the point is hope. Every time Peter uses the word imperishable, he wants to stamp the word hope across our mind and heart. There's reasons for confidence. We have been saved to an imperishable inheritance through an imperishable faith, purchased with imperishable blood, born again by an imperishable word. Do you have a sense how permanent you are? As a Christian, you can't fall. And that's profoundly different than what you used to be because natural man is grass. And Peter quotes that. Isaiah 40, verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. That's what we used to be like. Peter reminds us of that. Matthew Henry says, He now sets before us the vanity of the natural man, taking him with all his ornaments and advantages. All flesh is as grass, and nothing can make him a solid, substantial being. Take man in all of his glory, his wit, his beauty, his strength, vigor, wealth, honor. These are but the flowers of grass 
which soon wither and dies away. Just look at all the beautiful people in our culture. The movie stars, the athletes, the politicians, the powerful, impressive, the influential, the wealthy. Look at all of them. And it's grass, 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 grass. And flowers of grass. And Isaiah 40 says, the breath of the Lord blows and it withers and dies. And that's exactly what happens. The great prominent rulers of the world are here today and gone tomorrow. The Lord blows his breath and they're gone. And the place remembers it no more. And that's what we were. doesn't mean that they're not, they're not valuable. They are valuable, made in the image of God. It's, it's an awful, awful thing for an image bearer to be grass and to be destroyed and go to hell. And yet that's, that's where we are by virtue of Adam's sin and our own choices. And Matthew Henry says the only way to render this perishing creature solid and incorruptible is for him to entertain and receive the word of God. For this remains everlasting truth. And if received, will preserve him to everlasting life. And that's your story if you're a Christian. I once was grass. And I was in love with flowers of grass. I thought that the beauty of men, the beauty of women, that wealth, the honor, the intelligence, the wit of people, that I thought that that was life. And if I could just have that, if I could just participate in that, if I could hang around with, with, with that, or if I could take those attributes to myself, that would be substantial. That would be significance, and it's all grass. But Jesus, you see, rescues grass. And he makes us incredibly substantial. A child of God is someone who's been born again of imperishable seed and thus is imperishable. And Peter reminds them, this is the good news that was preached to you. This is the gospel that was preached to you. This is what you believed. This is how you came to faith. This is how you were born again, through the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And it is able to absolutely transform your life. Let me just wrap with this. What... What are the obstacles in your life to authentic, earnest, fervent, Christ-like love? What are the obstacles? What are the things that keep you from going there? What are the things that, that the excuses that you make or the circumstances you would point to that, that would allow you to live sort of at half speed if that, that, that you, you recognize you don't really love people but you've just taken that's maybe the way you are what are the obstacles what are the defeaters of this kind of love well there's not that many actually I think it boils down to selfishness and pride we like what we like we like our way we like our to serve our ends our comfort our security we like to be right we like to be heard we like to be first it's hard for us to humble ourselves. It's hard for us to actually receive people as gifts. We often receive them as obstacles and encumbrances, annoyances. And the gospel, you see, is able to change you because the gospel destroys you. The gospel says you were so wicked, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, had to give his life to rescue you. On what basis do you have any more pride? How can, 
On what basis can you justify your self-centeredness, your selfishness, your lack of love? The very second person of the Trinity gave his life for you when you were dead in sin, when you hated and rebelled against him. And you're going to be the unmerciful servant who's had the vast, vast uh, amount of your debt canceled, forgiven by the king, and now you're going to wrap your arms around, your, your, your hands around the neck of the guy that owes you 10 bucks, and you're going to hold on to that grudge. You're going to refuse to love the person who wronged you. You're going to refuse to reach out to the person that needs you. You're going to live your little contented, self-centered, self-righteous life. In light of the cross, you see, the, the gospel doesn't let you get away with that. And if you continue on in that path, and then the, the, the Bible says you, you don't understand the gospel. You, you don't get it. You haven't, you, haven't, you haven't met Jesus yet. Not that Jesus. You haven't been born again. But if you've been born again, then the truth of the gospel, you'll see, will, will break your heart and you can't help but get on your knees and confess how poorly you've loved. And you, you can't help but beg that God would, would forgive you. And that God would teach you how to actually love people in Jesus' name. The other obstacle is fear. You've loved before and, and you've been hurt. Maybe hurt horribly. Maybe you have this, this deep sense that you know that if you really pour your life out and love people, people are going to disappoint you. And if you deeply, deeply love some, someone, you, your life might be devastated because you might lose them. They might be taken away by death. And that's all true, isn't it? And so fear of being hurt, fear of losing things, losing ourself, losing our life can be an obstacle to love. But you see, the gospel can transform us there too because the gospel exalts us. That we are so loved that God gave his own son, Jesus Christ. And if we've been so loved that God gave his own son, then we can't lose anything. If we've been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, there's, there's nothing that can be lost. And, and whatever hurt that we experience in the path of love is, is just following in the steps of Jesus Christ. And he promises that we will receive a hundredfold in return. And that he is delighted in our willingness to suffer for his sake, in his name, because the gospel is true. And the gospel is transforming our hearts. You see, the gospel actually is the power of God that can teach us how to love. It is then for us to go to the gospel over and over and over again. It's, it's, it's then to us to stop pretending that we're doing pretty well at this. Because the truth is that we can do so much better. We can do so much better. So Peter calls us then with this command. Set your hope fully on the grace that's yours in Jesus Christ and all that God promises and, and be holy because God is holy and he loves you and, and set your hope on the reward that is to come and then by the power of the gospel, love, love each other, forgive each other, bear with each other, be patient and kind with each other and in love, see the people around you, even those who are lost and, and love them too. And may our love really be a lamp. The love that God has poured out into our hearts be a lamp in this community calling people to come to know the Savior who loves to love us. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, 
Again, Father, tonight you know our hearts. You know the loves of our heart. We love pleasure. We love entertainment. We love comfort. We love security. We love significance. We love being first. We love being right. We love being noticed and cared for. And we'll fight for those things. And we'll complain if we don't have them. And Jesus, forgive us. I pray, Lord God, that your gospel would be able to rid our hearts of all those idols as you teach us how to love, really love, actually love, that we receive the people in this building as gifts that we absolutely do not deserve. Why should we be allowed to be a part of the family of God? And why should we have the privilege of of people made in God's image, people who know us and yet are willing to bear with us and love us and forgive us. We don't deserve it. Father, you know the hearts here tonight that have been really wounded and have decided just to draw in and not risk love. I pray that you'd set them free in the confidence and the hope that we have in the gospel that we don't lose anything in Jesus. And some of us, Lord, are just selfish and proud. I pray that the gospel would would humble us and teach us how to love. For, Lord, you said that it is the love that manifests that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that the love of Christ that we taste, that we receive, and that we share would spill out of the walls of this place, out of our homes, out of our marriages, out of our relationships, and spill over into a world that so desperately needs to see something different than what they know. And Jesus, we pray this so that you would be glorified as a God of love and a God who's able to make sinners into lovers. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.